This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. That's our motto at Westminster Seminary, California. Our mission is to prepare believers to fulfill Christian vocations. Our faculty is composed of pastors and teachers whose calling is to serve the church. A couple of times each year, however, our faculty takes your calls for a special episode of Office Hours we'd like to call Ask the Profs. In this episode, we take calls on the state of the church, the distinction between law and gospel, how to deal with church members who reject the doctrine of predestination, the two kingdoms distinction, and the phrase, the means of grace. Congratulations to Bolivar Allman, Nate Osby, Jim Newsom, Joel DeLeon, and Nick Smiley. Because their calls were selected for this episode, each will receive a free copy of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. Keep listening. We received so many excellent calls that we'll broadcast more of them in September. Thanks also to Professors Bob Godfrey, Mike Horton, Joel Kim, David Vendrunen, and John Fesco for answering these questions. So let's get right to the phones. First up is Bolivar Allman from Hancomer, Texas, who asks, What is the biggest ecclesiological problem facing the Reformed churches today? That's a wonderful question. I wish I had a wonderful answer. I suppose my inclination is to say, and therefore I will say, that the biggest problem facing the Reformed churches is being Reformed churches. That is, I think... There are so many pressures on us as Reformed churches, uh, pressures that would push us in a variety of directions that it is very difficult as a really rather small minority movement in the American scene, if we're thinking just of America, to maintain our own essential character as Reformed churches. Um, We're under pressure from some elements to move in a more fundamentalist direction on certain issues. Uh, We're under pressure from others to move in a more revivalist or Pentecostalizing direction that would undermine our worship. Uh, We're under pressure from the pragmatists who think we're too doctrinal. Occasionally, we're under pressure from a small number of doctrinalists who don't want us to be the church and just want us to be a theological debating society. And so to really be Reformed churches with all of the the richness that that term ought to mean and, and ought to bring to life is, is very difficult. Another pressure we're under as Reformed churches is the what we might call sociological economic pressure of America. When you look at American denominations, you soon discover that they tend to create a sort of economic social divide amongst themselves so that they fall into categories where they tend to attract people from a particular economic, educational, social background. And that has been obviously true for many years amongst Presbyterians in this country. They have tended to attract a somewhat more affluent, somewhat better educated clientele, to put it crassly. They are not as well educated or as rich as the Episcopalians, but nearly. And I think one of the things we long for in our Reformed churches is that we don't just reflect a certain ethnic, economic, or sociological group, but that we really are, as Christ Church ought to be, 
uh, a church that welcomes all kinds and sorts of people. The Dutch Reformed churches perhaps have been slightly better at this historically just because as an Im- a relatively recent immigrant church, it meant they had a lot more people who were blue-collar initially. But the Dutch Reformed churches are going through the same sort of gentrification, one might say, uh, in America that the other churches are. So, you know, I think one of the great things we want to do is to really try to understand what it means to be a Reformed church and then to try to do that in a way that is open, attractive, and faithful to our confessional heritage. Uh, One way, you know, I think we want to try to do that is to not require that you be a theologian or interested only in reading theology to be a member of the church. Uh, We need people who want to be deacons in the church, who want to be evangelists in the church, who want to reach out in a variety of ways, who see the importance of being a Christian community. That's part of being a light set on a hill, not just getting your theology right, as important as that is, but also being a church in the full sense of being a community and expressing the riches of Christ's redemptive work. Nate Ostby calls to ask about the distinction between law and gospel. Whenever I say anything about the law-gospel distinction and the corresponding categories of imperative and indicative, the response I usually get is something like, well, uh, Jesus said, believe on me or, or uh, come to me, and these are, these are in the imperative mood grammatically, and so those categories don't work, and, and we have to throw that distinction out. Good question. Well, it's important, first of all, to say the gospel is an indicative. It doesn't mean that there aren't imperatives surrounding the gospel. For instance, there are calls to believe. Those aren't indicatives. Those are imperatives. Repent and believe the gospel. But they are imperatives to believe the gospel. So when we say the gospel itself is pure indicative, what we're saying is it's an announcement. An indicative is a state of affairs. We're not making this distinction up, of course. There are four moods in the Greek. Obviously, none of us is is saying that only two moods that, that you encounter in the text, technically speaking, indicatives and imperatives. Our older theologians said that you can gather all of the scriptures together under two headings, law and gospel. And one way of talking about that is imperative and indicative. Imperatives tell you to do something just as the law does, indicatives tell you a state of affairs, what is in fact the case. And so you don't believe imperatives, you do imperatives. And you don't do indicatives, you believe indicatives. When somebody tells you the war is over, uh, they are announcing something to you. Uh, They're not telling you to do something, they are announcing something to you that you either believe or you don't believe. Now that engenders in you the desire to do something, uh, for instance, to cheer, to celebrate, to grab a friend and, uh, and celebrate with them, or to go out and tell other people the announcement. The announcement itself is not an exhortation. And that's the, that, that's the way it is with the gospel. The gospel is good news. There's a reason why it's euangelion. It's good news. It's not good advice. It's not a command to do anything. So when people hear us say the gospel is not a command, but a promise or an announcement, they, they often think we're saying that there are no announcements asso- or, or commands associated with the gospel. And obviously in the New Testament, there are plenty of commands associated with the gospel. Believe, repent, Trust in Jesus Christ. Those are all imperatives. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, But I will give you rest is the indicative part of that. The gospel is not come to me. 
The gospel is, I will give you rest. I am your rest. I am your Sabbath. The imperative is to come to Jesus who will give you that rest. Yeah, it's shorthand for, for talking about uh, the difference between a, a command to do something and a report of something to be believed. So it's not just the difference in uh, the Greek language between indicatives and imperatives that we're resting this case on, but the fact that, that the, the scriptures themselves distinguish between law covenants, for example, and promise covenants. Most famously, the Apostle Paul draws that uh, contrast. They do different things. The law is uh, good if you use it lawfully, Paul says. Uh, you have to understand what the law does. The law is not there to announce good news. The law is there to tell the truth about your situation vis-a-vis God's holiness and just requirements. Uh, The law doesn't exonerate anyone who hasn't fully kept it. So the law does what the law can do. Imperatives do what imperatives can do. They can only command. That's just the nature of the law. That's just the nature of imperatives. They can command, and then they can tell you whether you've done it or not. But gospel or indicatives tell you a state of affairs. What has God done to save me? Not what does God require of me, but what has God done in order to save me? And so it's not just resting the whole case on the the difference uh, between imperative and indicative moods in Greek. It's correlated with the distinction between law and gospel that we find clearly delineated in the scriptures, and also the clear difference between the commands that we have in Scripture and the nature of the gospel as euangelion. By definition, the gospel is news, announcement, good tidings. That cannot be confused with anything else. That is what the gospel is. That's what euangelion means. So it's through a collateral interpretation of all of these terms that the Bible uses that our theologians down through the centuries have, I think, very rightly come to say that the distinction between law and gospel, between commands and promises, between something to be done and something to be believed, is fundamental and that you cannot read the scriptures without having that distinction in mind. Otherwise, it'll it'll just become a mush. A friend of mine calls it gospel. It's, it's sort of a confusion of law and gospel. Jesus upbraided the Pharisees because uh, he said, you're like children playing the funeral game and the wedding game. You know, with the funeral game, everybody's supposed to pretend that they're weeping and mourning. With the wedding game, everybody's supposed to pretend that they're dancing and feasting and having a good time at a, at a party. But he says, you, you know, you guys neither weep and mourn nor do you really dance and celebrate. And I think what he's saying is basically you don't get the law or the gospel. The law is foreign to you because you think you've kept it, and uh, therefore, obviously, you have reduced the requirements of the law to what you think you can keep. That's our always our tendency. Ask anybody, do you think that you're basically a good person? And they say yes. Then you ask them why. And you say, are you, are you perfect? Have you kept, have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself? Well, no, I mean, I have, I, I have bad hair days. But they lower the bar. That's not what the law requires. That's what I have decided I'm capable of. And so people always have to lower the law, but the law comes to play the funeral march. 
The law comes to tell us that we are completely helpless, that we are morally depraved, that we're spiritually dead, that we can't lift a finger in this salvage operation. And then the gospel is the wedding march. The gospel is is the announcement. The groom is here for his bride. He's clothing her in his own righteousness. He's dying for her sins, washing her with his own blood. And that is good news, and that causes everybody to, to, to jump. But the Pharisees, because they didn't take their sin as seriously as the law told them to, didn't take the good news seriously. They didn't think they needed that deep a rescue operation. And that's the danger if we don't distinguish carefully between the law and the gospel. If we confuse that, then people will think that the law doesn't require absolute perfection, which I don't have, and they won't think that the gospel provides that absolute perfection in Christ alone. Instead, what they'll do is use the law as the gospel, as if trying to fulfill these commands, trying to be a better person, trying to follow the exhortations in Scripture, trying to bear the fruit of the Spirit, at least giving it an old college try is somehow going to put me in good standing with God. Hi, this is Jim Newsom. I'm a recently installed elder in a PCA church in the Memphis area. One of the brothers under my care strongly rejects the Reformed teachings on such doctrines as election and predestination. What is your advice for shepherding this dear brother in a winsome but persuasive way? In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresson Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ his gospel, and his church.
Thanks, Joel. The next call comes from another Joel, this one from Salt Lake City, Utah, and he asks... I've often heard that from uh, pastors and critiques of two kingdom theology that there's been some hint that this might lead to antinomianism. What's your response to this allegation? Well, thank you for that question. Uh, I think it's an important one. The two kingdoms doctrine is often misunderstood, and it seems to me that when people suspect that the two kingdoms doctrine might lead to antinomianism, uh, they probably don't really understand what the two kingdoms doctrine is all about. The two kingdoms doctrine says that God is the ruler of all things. Uh, God is supreme uh, ruler over all creation. Uh, What the Two Kingdoms Doctrine says is that God has two distinct sorts of rule. Uh, He rules the world as creator and sustainer, and he also has this unique rule as uh, the redeemer of his people uh, as he establishes the church and builds up a people for everlasting life. But it's important to understand that God's moral law applies in both kingdoms. Uh, It applies just as much in the civil common kingdom as it applies in the redemptive spiritual kingdom. Because God is Lord of both kingdoms, uh, his law applies in both kingdoms. And even for unbelievers working, living in the common kingdom who have never read the scriptures, God's natural law continues to press itself upon their hearts and consciences and to hold them responsible for the way that they live before him. Now, That means that as Christians uh, who go out and who live and who work in the common kingdom, uh, we're not just to capitulate, uh, we're not just to give in to whatever the world says, however the world thinks, whatever the world does, because we recognize that whether we're involved in politics or whether we're in the workplace or whatever we're doing in the broader world is under God's authority, uh, that we seek to be obedient to God and to God's law in everything that we're doing. And that means that as we have opportunity to make our workplace, our neighborhood, our community better and and, and in greater conformity with God's moral law, we will take that opportunity uh, to do it. Now, we have to understand, of course, that Scripture does command us to be properly submissive to the legitimate authorities in this world, such as uh, civil magistrates. And so we, we recognize that we have to honor and to submit in certain ways, even when those who have political offices do things that are not in accord with God's law. And we also recognize that uh, God's moral law applies in some different ways in the church uh, from the way that it does, say, in the state or in the workplace. Uh, and so there are things that happen in the church and the way the church is governed, uh, the way the church handles conflict, uh, which is going to be different from the way those things are handled in the state or in uh, 
the workplace, uh, but in whatever sphere of life we're in, uh, God's law uh, applies, and we as Christians are certainly obligated to be pursuing and following God's law in every activity that we undertake. Thanks, Dave. And finally, Nick Smiley from Greensboro, North Carolina, calls to ask about an expression that occurs both in Calvin and in the Westminster Standards. I have a question for you about the use of the phrase means of grace in Reformed theology. Uh, My question is, where does that phrase come from uh, historically and biblically, and how is it defined? We can start at least historically by saying that it's a phrase that originated as a technical term in the Middle Ages, where Roman Catholic theologians, what we would call them now, or Catholic theologians, uh, argued that baptism and the Lord's Supper were the means by which we received the grace of God, uh, and in particular the infused grace of God through baptism, as well as the body and blood of Christ, the actual physical and body blood of Christ through the Lord's Supper. In the Reformation, those concepts were still retained, but in a sense filled with a different uh, doctrine. The idea is is that, yes, baptism and Lord's Supper are means of grace to us, and they function in the same way that the Word of God functions, just as the Word of God can be a means of blessing to us, and in that sense bring God's grace to us, so too the sacraments, as God's visible Word, uh, bring us that same grace, except it's the Word of God that takes priority, and the means of grace in terms of the sacraments are confirmation of God's grace that is given to us uh, in the Word. But then the question is, is where do these arrive biblically? And we see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul talks about the Lord's Supper and where the Corinthians were uh, coming to the Lord's Supper to commit gross sin. And he said some were weak and ill and even some had died. And this is an important element of how they are a means of grace in that the sacraments can be a means of grace, a means of blessing. They can also be a means of judgment in that just as we receive the word inappropriately and it can bring condemnation upon us, so too if we receive the sacraments inappropriately, they too can bring uh, condemnation upon us. Ultimately, the distinction and the important thing to remember is that they can only be a means of grace ultimately if a person has faith in Christ. Apart from faith in Christ, they can bring judgment upon a person and it's only through faith in Christ that they can be a means of grace. Thanks, John. And thanks to Bolivar, Nate, Jim, Joel, and Nick for calling. Your copies of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, will be going out soon. Remember, you can order your copy of Always Reformed from the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Thanks also to Professors Bob Godfrey, Mike Horton, Joel Kim, David Vendrunen, and John Fesco for playing along. If you called and your call wasn't used in this episode, hang on. So Joel in Colorado Springs, Ray in St. Louis, Mark in Charlotte, and Jim in Gibsonville, North Carolina, we'll get to your calls. We're putting together another episode of Ask the Profs for September. Thanks for listening. Join the fun. Give us a call at 760-480-8477. 760-480-8477. And maybe you'll get to play Ask the Profs. And don't forget to let your friends know about Office Hours. wscal.edu slash office hours. We're also on iTunes. If you benefit from Office Hours, go to the Office Hours page and click on the Like button so people will see us on Facebook. You can also help Office Hours by going to the iTunes store and giving us a rating or writing a review. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.